Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The following panel is brought to you by the Sundance TV HQ at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Enjoy! Welcome to the Sundance TV HQ. Thank you everyone for coming out. This is our annual Close Up with the Hollywood Reporter live indie filmmakers panel. We are thrilled to have everyone here. I'm going to bring up our moderator, Pia Sinha Roy from The Hollywood Reporter. Hi everybody. Happy, sad, happy Sunday, thank you so much for being here. I am really happy to be here with this group. Um, we're gonna have a really, really uh, interesting and informative conversation about the films they have. They're all really important. So without further ado, and I really appreciate all of you being here, so without further ado, I'm gonna introduce all of them to you. So first up, I'm gonna have uh, Channing Godfrey Peoples, the director of Miss Juneteenth. <laughs> Uh, next up is Lee Isaac Chung, the director of Minari, who goes by Isaac. <laughs> next up, we have Lana Wilson, the director of Miss Americana, the Tales of the Country. <laughs> and we have Eliza Hitman, director of Never Rarely, Always, Sometimes Always. Sorry. <laughs> Edson Oda of Nine Days. And last but not least, Janixa Bravo of Zola. Thank you all so much for being here. Please take a seat. Oh, that's squishy. Goodness. <laughs> so um, I really, I really appreciate all of you being here and. and um, all of your films are so different, um, and all of your, your individual perspectives and visions really come through. But there are also some very interesting threads that tie them all together. Um, but first up, I'm going to actually ask each of you individually a, a little bit about your movies, so that if anyone here hasn't seen your film yet, they'll get to learn a bit more about it. And then I'm going to ask about some of these broader themes. So, uh, Janix, I'd love to start with you. You are the, the film, like, the director and co-writer of Zola, um, which if you guys have not seen the 
Twitter thread uh, by Zola Moon. Um, you're in for a treat <laughs> with Zola. But if you do know the story, you know how absolutely surreal it is. Um, and Janix, I know how much you were into the Twitter thread and you, you went after this story because you felt like you were the person to tell it. Um, what was the most important aspect of the story that you wanted to, do, to really convey through your storytelling of it? Uh, so my film is called Zola. It is based on a Twitter thread. It's a dark comedy about two women, one black, one white, who become fast friends and then go on a road trip from Detroit to Florida to make money dancing and things don't go as planned. I found or the, the story came to me because someone sent it to me and it was on Twitter and I fell in love with it immediately and I wanted it because the voice was a voice that I hadn't heard before and I was I felt quite tethered to it because what I mostly heard when I read it was that it was this young black woman's way of processing trauma. She told this very funny, thrilling, electric story that is quite bleak, uh, but imbued it with so much life. And it was her ability to process her trauma in this humored way that really turned me on. And I think I felt the most suited for it because I didn't think that anybody else would be able to protect her narrative in the way that I would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I think you did a really incredible job with that. Um, it, and it's such, a, it's such an insane story, so I really do hope you all get a chance to see it. Um, Edson, mm -hmm. you have a, a really... I, so I love sci-fi stories that are mm -hmm. told in the indie film space, um, and you have this really cool concept of which basically questions the very root of our existence. Your, mm -hmm. your film asks about the privilege of being born. Uh -huh. So I just was really curious to know kind of what you were thinking that you wanted to explore with your story. Uh, do you want me to talk through the concept or more like what inspired just what you? Just what you felt um, inspired to explore with the concept of your film. Uh, I think it's pretty much like a, we, we all have like this goal-oriented mind sometimes you know we have to we want to achieve something we want to get that we want to you know go there and I feel like uh, sometimes why not what if like we already achieved the goal you know we're alive we're here so I think it's uh, nine days so much about like exploring the moment being present and maybe you know you're like you're a soul and you're kind of competing with the other souls and uh, you just wanted to be alive and and now you're here and, and maybe that the, the, the most important thing is just uh, enjoying the moment and, and, and instead of taking for granted stuff that feels very like simple and, and not special, but actually maybe those moments are the most uh, special moments that you can really enjoy. Uh, changing tracks a little bit, Eliza, your film, uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, uh, is, is the story of a 17-year-old who seeks out how to get an abortion uh, legally and it was interesting seeing it, especially in Utah, where abortion is legal, but under 17s have to get parental consent, just like your character faces. Um, so what was kind of the key thing that you wanted to portray in your, it's a very quiet, a very unflinching tale. What were you interested in, in exploring with that? Um, you know, I think for me, it was an untold story, and so many women all over the world are forced to travel, and I wanted to mine it 
for, you know, obviously a political story, but also a poetic journey. And I make coming-of-age films, and they're narratives, you know, not of transformation, but of disillusionment, I would say. And, you know, just the idea of, like, women flocking to New York to find access and, you know, spending 48 hours in a city they've never been to navigating a crisis and a very unwelcoming environment, you know? So, you know, it's a character story, first and foremost, I would say, mm -hmm. and a uh, character study. And, you know, it's, a, it's about a journey, and it's, you know, a fictional film, but it's about a real journey. Yeah. Lana, you chose to take on one of the most famous people in the world and profile her in a really intimate um, and really insightful way with Miss Americana. Um, so, you know, what were the, the immediate kind of thoughts you had when you were taking on the story? And what were you surprised to discover about um, Taylor Swift uh, in your process? I, well, my immediate thoughts were, you know, I was someone who had admired her from afar in large part because I knew she had written all of her own songs for mm -hmm. 15 years and that she was this extraordinarily successful and powerful woman in a male-dominated industry. So I was really interested in seeing what her experience was like specifically as a woman. And I was, I was surprised by how much felt relatable to me. The movie really traces her journey from being someone who lives for the approval of others to this woman who goes through a gradual shift in her consciousness and perspective and ends up being someone who decides she needs to stand up for her morals and values regardless of what the reaction to that is. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was really drawn to in, in meeting and getting to know her. Yeah. Please silence your phones. <laughs> no, it's yeah, it was so informative, yeah. and uh, I felt like I learned so much about her that I would never have known otherwise. So really cool, uh, Isaac. You have a very personal story in Minari. It's it's kind of personal to you because it's from your own life, right? It's the story of a Korean American. It's Korean American story, Korean immigrant story, um, and. It's also set in the 1980s, yeah. which I thought was really interesting because I'm sure it's also something that feels very pertinent now. So what did, how did you feel it par parallels to present day? Um, well, initially, I just set out to really write what I know and to be very personal with the film. Uh, and I, I grew up in the 80s in Arkansas, so I thought, on a farm. So you know, <laughs> I didn't venture too far with, with this story. Um, but, you know, I saw a lot of parallels as I, as I was doing the work. Uh, while I grew up, it was during the farm crisis in Arkansas. So you see a lot of, uh, of the trouble and struggle that's going on that, that my parents went through. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of see that happening also in the U.S. right now uh, with, with farming. So, yeah, it, it was interesting to see those ties going together and then to also think about immigration and to think about, um, you know, just a whole host of, of issues. But at the heart of it, it's really just... The story of this little boy who's a rascal, and you know that, that's my story. So, was it um, cathartic to tell it? Um, cathartic in a in a way, but I didn't want to use it as like a therapy piece where I'm, you know, expensive therapy <laughs> where I'm you know, spending tons, tons of money to do. Yeah, no. Uh, but but it was strangely cathartic in in that I noticed that after I made it, you know, it kind of shifts what I dream about and, and things like that. Huh. So yeah, I, I know there's something deep that's going on, but I can't. I have no idea. You're letting it play its course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and Channing, um, 
Oh, your movie, all of your movies have been like sticking with me. I keep thinking about, I've had very weird dreams the last few nights. <laughs> um, but your movie is, uh, I was thinking about how other directors may have chosen to portray the story of this mother and daughter, uh, perhaps in a very different light, more tragic maybe. You gave your characters so much dignity and grace and hope. Thank you. Um, and I was really, really moved by that because I don't think we get to see that so often. And so, yeah, I, I guess, you know, for you, what was important for you to capture with the story you're telling in Miss Juneteenth? I think, um, you know, I felt I filmed it in my hometown of Fort Worth, Texas. And um, I filmed it in the community that I grew up mm -hmm. in. And um, like the bar that you see in the film is a bar that I frequented coming I up. <laughs> <laughs> like all of my locations were locations I grew up in. And so I felt from the community this hopefulness, you know, and I felt like women like turquoise. Um, I wrote turquoise because I grew up with women like that. I, I am one of those women. So I felt that hopelessness, you know, even in like her journey to survive, you know, even in her struggles, like she always has hope. And um, that's what the movie's about, this hope for her daughter. Mm -hmm. So that just naturally came from where I set the film. Yeah, it was it was really touching actually to see it told that way. Thank you so much. I loved it. Um, so one of the key themes I've been thinking about a lot in all of your stories is the exploration of what is or actually who is America. With all of your stories, you're exploring voices that aren't necessarily always heard about or considered. So I wanted to ask you broadly, each one of you, whoever wants to answer, take it first. You know, what do you think? you say about who is America with your personal stories? <laughs> no one wants it. <laughs> Everybody's like, I'm staring clear. Um, well, you know what, Lana, you're kind of... Oh, no. You have, you have a movie called Miss Americana. Um, OK. But, you know, this Fair is enough. the script. So, but I wanted to... But, you know, yeah. I, well, I'll, I'll tell... I can start by... Yeah, I, I, we called the movie Miss Americana. It's a reference to a song <coughs> that Philip wrote that has some themes of political disillusionment. I really liked it personally because it, I see the movie as being about the flip side of being America's sweetheart. Mm -hmm. All the challenges that come with that extraordinary level of public scrutiny and pressure. Um, so, you know, this is someone who is peerless in a lot of ways. And I see that as both, I mean, it as a compliment and as a quandary. Mm -hmm. She's receiving a constant amount of feedback, not just on her music, but on her as a person. And she's also a woman in the public eye. And there's a lot of challenges that come with that. So whether it's from exploring her relationship to her own body, mm -hmm. to you know a sexual assault trial that she went through, to just her own desire to be what she calls it, you know, a good girl, a woman who doesn't offend anyone or bother anyone and smiles and is nice. I think that's something a lot of women and girls struggle with. And those were the themes that are a part of being America's sweetheart that I was interested in diving into in the film. Mm -hmm. And Channing, I think your film has very similar themes, funny right. enough. Mm. It's the notion of what is, a, you know, a good, a, 
a sort of good woman in a way um, right. and upending those notions in some ways. I mean, we play with that theme a little bit like, what was the thing? What is America or who is I was, America? I was, I was thinking there was a thread of like, who is America, but almost like redefining who is America. Yeah, I mean, with your films. I, I really feel like there's, there's a couple of lines in the film that are dedicated to this. But, um, you know, one of the things that Kai, who's the younger daughter of Turquoise, the lead character, mm -hmm. um, says to her is, you know, she's asking about the importance of the Juneteenth pageant. She says it ain't like it's Miss America, you know, and for Turquoise, it was Miss America, you know, and when we talk about like, what is America, like Miss Juneteenth is a scholastic beauty pageant for young African-American women. So it's their version of, you know, what it is to be a young American woman. And it's their version of like creating positive change for themselves. Yeah. Um, there's also another character in the film that uh, says, there's no, we're playing with these themes of what the American dream is. Yeah. And um, he says, um, there's no American dream for, there ain't no American dream for black folks. We just hold on to what we got. And so Turquoise is playing with that as well. Like she's trying to find something to hold on to. And Miss Juneteenth for her is almost like a lotto ticket so that she can create a better future for her daughter. Right. Uh, Janixa, I thought, you know, um, I'm interested in what you uh, felt Zola's America was through through telling her story? I think that both of the women in the movie, the two female leads are, they work in the sex industry, they do sex work, and I think if, probably one of the louder notes of the film is that their stories also have value and that those women don't deserve to be dismissed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, that. <laughs> no, you're right. It's not stories that we see very often told in an authentic way. And that's what I really loved about this whole story, that it's the authentic story that isn't just glamorized or, you know, just told through a, a, a disassociated lens. In a Absolutely. Way. I think it's also, you know, it is, it is based on a, the IP is off of Twitter and that, you know, hopefully says or should signal that great work is allowed to come from a multitude of a, uh, sources. There isn't just the one way or the way that we have gone about doing things. And I, I know it, initially when working on the project, there was this language that was sort of diminutive, a kind of throwaway because of where it was coming from. But to me, the piece was as was better than most of the work that was being sent to me or put in front of me, or even my own work that I was interested in, in pursuing at the time. It was the most dynamic thing that, it, that I had read. And, and yes, it came from Twitter, and yes, it came from a 19-year-old black girl who you know, no one had told, no one had really told her that she was a writer or given her that kind of value, but she gave it to herself. Yeah, and she did such a great job with it. I really She's love her story. a rocket, yeah. She's really cool. She got like the loudest like cheers and standing ovations at the premiere and I was like, yes, do that. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to ask all of you a little bit about working with your, with your leads and your subjects and how collaborative that process is for, for you. As filmmakers, how do you like to engage with your leads and how much do they inform the story you end up telling? 
Again, I'm throwing it out there, whoever wants to take it first. <laughs> Eliza. Sure. Um, well, I worked with two, you know, first-time actors. In my Who are actors. amazing, Thank by the you. way. Thank you. And, you know, one of them I met when she was 14, and I just, you know, met her in passing. It's a long story, but it was at a, if you guys know what juggalos are, it was at a juggalo wedding <laughs> on the fringes of South Buffalo. And I was mesmerized by this 14-year-old with a shaved head and an angry clown face. Um, and I started following her on Twitter and, you know, was or on Facebook and was really captivated by this kind of angry rock she was posting, um, playing the guitar in her bedroom cover. And I don't know, I kind of like plucked her from Facebook to be in this movie. And I think she was really disoriented that like her music that she was making in her bedroom could somehow speak to somebody someplace else. And um, she had never acted in a movie before, and obviously, and I didn't get any rehearsal time with her. And, you know, and the other young actress had done Broadway and all these things, and I had to put them in the same world. And luckily, they both came from the same city, and that became part of their bond. And I had about a day with them to prepare the movie. Wow. Um, and I gave them each a notebook, and I knew some things about their lives and some common threads. And I gave them very personal prompts, and I let them write about themselves, and I left them alone. Yeah. And I just let them share because they needed to have a bond on set, you know, that was between them and nobody else. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, the beginning of their friendship. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that was really all I got with them. And then we were shooting the movie. Mm. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I tried my best, I would say. <laughs> I'm, like, blown away that they're first-time actors. You would not be able to tell at all. They're incredible. Uh, Edson, you have the incredible Winston Duke. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it unbelievable. And uh, I think the connection with my lead was one of the most important things uh, when I was making this movie because, uh, first of all, he's almost in every single scene mm -hmm. of the movie. And uh, second, because uh, the main character he, that he plays, uh, Will, he uh, was inspired by my, my uncle. Uh, to write that character, and my uncle was uh, such a sensitive and kind and very artistic person, but uh, he committed suicide when I was 50. And, yeah. and uh, it's, it's interesting how uh, when that happened, uh, there's a lot of judgment in, uh, in terms of how he did that because that, he did that because, and people have so many assumptions. And for me, it was super important to have someone who wouldn't judge my uncle at all, who would just like, you know, try to understand what he went through, understand his, you know, his pain, but also understand, I think, his joys, understand that he was a person and with a, a lot of complexity, and that he wasn't defined by just what he did in the end. And uh, I felt from Winston, like, he, uh, besides being, like, an amazing, uh, unbelievable actor, he was uh, a true, amazing human being who would never judge my uncle for whatever he's done. So in the process, started very, uh, it was very intimate. We had like conversations, and then it just started showing uh, things that my, my uncle draw, you know, or, or parts of you know, his pictures and stuff like that, and uh, just opening the conversation with him. And, and we started building this character together. So it was pretty much like we, we, were, like a, we, we were together like just to, to build this this character was very personal to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, Isaac, how was, because your story is so mm -hmm. personal as well, how was your collaboration process? 
Um, uh, that's a great question, because one of the first things I told everyone when I, I met with them, uh, all the actors, is I don't want you to mimic any of my family members, or you, or, you, know, you don't have to pretend to like, uh, recreate my childhood or anything like that. So I tried to give them as much freedom as possible. Um, and a, a lot of that comes with the casting process. Like I, I, I just personally feel like if you have a story, um, know who you're casting and and believe in them, trust in them. And I, I felt like it was such a smooth shoot in that way. Uh, this this family in, in my film, it's a family of five. It's a grandmother, two adults, and two kids. Um, two of the adults are from Korea and are veteran seasoned Korean actors. And they're, they're much more comfortable with Korean. And then we have Steven Yun, who plays the dad. And he's, um, he's, he's really fluent in both languages, but he has some techniques from the American film industry, some te techniques from Korean films. Um, and then we have the two kids who've never acted before. So um, in a way, I felt like we were always trying to learn how to work together mm -hmm. um, in a very trust, uh, trusting environment. And then also, all the adults were trying to create an environment for the kids to respond naturally. Um, so they, they were so generous to these kids, and, and when the kids are getting their coverage or close-ups, you know, the, the, all, the, all the actors were there to basically give to them and teach them and train them. So it was, it was this interesting little mini acting camp for these little kids as well, which was great. You know, one kid is six years old, the other is, uh, or seven years old, the other is ten years old. So, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of unpredictable, but we were all working together as a team. Do you find with first-time actors that there is a sort of pureness to how they approach the craft? Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of times, the way that we would set things up is that we'd have the camera trained on the actor, and I'd say, this is the first time he's going <laughs> to respond to whatever you're saying, so let's just capture it. Um, let's not do a rehearsal. Hmm. And there be any time we could catch something where he is truly responding to a situation, like he has to eat some bad Korean medicine for the first time, you know, the face he makes, you know, we, we would capture these moments, and that's what really made it magical, like his performance, I felt. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, obviously, as we are at Sundance, and this is, you know, a festival that celebrates independent filmmaking for the most part, uh, I really want to ask you a little bit about the budgets that you've been working within. Um, so the first question I have for you is, what was the biggest budget splurge that you were able to make with your films? <laughs> was the one thing that you were like, I'm going to spend money on this? <laughs> That's a funny question. <laughs> Well, I, I can, it either. Was there like a particular scene or like a yeah. piece of music or a prop or something uh, that you're like, I have to have this? Can, can I? <laughs> Absolutely. We, we built a house in the desert. So. Oh, so that's good. a splurge. That's good, yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's good. Before doing this film, I had done, you know, independent yes. projects, one about abortion, one about suicide, yes. extremely low-budget films, where usually before a shoot, it would all be about the decision of what is the one lens we can afford? And then, oh, it's got to be a zoom lens. We can't afford primes. Could we afford two primes? And then a bunch of frenzy to try to afford two primes. And on this film, I could order as many lenses as I wanted, which was, it just, it's a small thing, but it felt like a Power real gift. <laughs> 
was excited. That's good. I wish I had something cool like that to say. <laughs> Anything my, you say is my producers are in this room. So. <laughs> but, but my one splurge was pageant crowns. Fair enough. <laughs> pageant crowns are a good splurge. And they look very cool. Uh, maybe for me, uh, I really wanted to shoot in the Ozarks because that's where I grew up. And I, I heard that'd be expensive, but you know, we all pushed for it to shoot in Tulsa, and that was, yeah, yeah worth it. Um, I mean, I've shot, two, I've shot a lot of films on 16mm and a feature on 16mm, and I really fought for it again on this film. And, you know, for me, I'm kind of representing these worlds that I think are kind of trapped in time, mm -hmm. and it doesn't work for me digitally. And I don't want to shoot a movie on the same camera that they use to shoot reality TV. For me, it's like, okay, I yeah. like to keep... You know, some distance between the feeling and to me, film is, you know, more of an emotional choice. And there's very dreamy quality to a lot of your shots, actually, mm -hmm. in the way you film scenes. So I see that mm -hmm. coming through. Janexa, uh, for you, do you have? <laughs> Do you have anything specific? Joy, what's my answer? Um, <laughs> I guess I I got to shoot on film as well um, on 16. I, it's probably film or getting to shoot in Tampa, Florida. Mm. There wasn't a ton of crew there. All of our key crew came in from out of town, and then so I think shooting in Florida was actually really expensive for us because we were bringing a lot in. Right but it felt really necessary because the story takes place in Tampa, or 80% of the story takes place in Tampa, and it is impossible to replicate Florida's vibe. Um, <laughs> but I bet they wanted to try. <laughs> oh, they did. <laughs> Hi, Lindsay. Uh, <laughs> we talked about that, yes. Yeah. So, you know, there are tax, we all know there are tax incentives yeah. to shooting in other places, and... Uh, I'd say that was probably the, one of the bigger kind of pushes or arguments of why it made sense and everyone agreed once we got, you know, once they saw it, it was like, yeah, yeah you can't, I mean, again, I don't know if you've been to Florida, but it's a very curious place and... Uh, I feel like I have by watching the movie now. Yeah, like, I feel like I've been to one of, its, one of its levels. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's like sort of demonic, but really special. And, <laughs> I think there's probably a couple other places in America yeah. that have that vibe, um, and yeah. Um, some of the locations you have as well are exquisite. Like some, I, I know the story is kind of insane within those locations, but I was looking at like the, the sets and they're stunning. Yeah, it's like a demon place. Um, <laughs> it's like I, I don't know how to. You're just all of those places are there, and you're like, this is satanic. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so. Tampa. Sounds good. Love it. Uh, and I'm going to flip that question around to um, what your biggest budget challenge was, what, or just filmmaking challenge was in telling your story. You guys, everyone said, like, all the producers here are sweating, going, stop moving like, that money. Uh, <laughs> is this recorded? Just, just the biggest, yeah. like, like, the biggest challenge you had in the process of filmmaking. We don't have to make it a budget thing. Joe and my editor is right here. We edited our film for about, together we edited for about nine months. Um, and I think that there was a desire for that not to be the amount of time that we worked on the movie. Um, <laughs> um, and I still think there's a couple other things we could do. 
after we leave the festival. Perfect place to let that out. Um, no one from A24 is here. Three notes. <laughs> Three notes. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. Edson, for you and the world that you've created. Yeah, it was very thing? complicated because uh, um, in this movie, every time when after Will selects a soul and sent to the real world, he's able to watch what there's the, the candidates he sent to the real world are, are seeing, so through the eyes. Uh, and then he has like several TVs on the wall. And can, every, every TV represents one person. So we have like 30 TVs. Wow. And you have to show like all these POVs like, uh, to, to fill out all those TVs. And I had this brilliant idea of uh, uh, trying to shoot practically everything instead of just going to VFX. And, uh, and then the thing is, like, we had to, while we were prepping, we were shooting. So we were shooting everything that goes on the TVs. While we were prepping, also we were farming out, like, uh, a lot of, like, people to run around. Like, in, we had, like, people in Brazil, in LA, in wow. Utah, just to collect like, a bunch of footage of people living their lives. Uh, so we had uh, so much uh, to picture lock before I was even uh, start shooting my principal photography. Right. So it was just this crazy overlap, and I don't know how, but it works. It worked. So <laughs> made it happen. Like, yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Eliza, for you, what, what was the biggest challenge you faced? Uh, well, you know, a part of my story is that, you know, it's wintertime, and these girls arrive in New York City, and, the, you know, they're not welcomed, and they just kind of hang out at Port Authority because... They're late, you know, passing time, and I just didn't have any concepts how much that would cost and what I would be permitted to do, and yet it was so central to the story I was telling, and it ended up costing a lot of money, and they only let us shoot from 12 to 4 a.m., and I had a minor who wasn't allowed to shoot past midnight, um, and it was a real nightmare. Right. But again, you can't cheat Port Authority for. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure you tried. Yeah. <laughs> sure someone did. Uh, Lana, how about for you? Yeah, I, I think the biggest challenge was building trust with Taylor for my film. I mean, this is someone for whom I think you might think, oh, she's famous. People are filming her all the time. She loves having camera around, cameras around, but that's that's not true because you know, in her life, cameras can be a destructive force. Mm -hmm. They can be paparazzi cameras. They can be people trying to get gotcha moments. Mm -hmm. So for me, I had to actually say I. I don't want a big crew. I want the tiniest footprint possible to get material that's as raw and genuine and intimate as possible. And then it was also just gradually building trust with Taylor about what I saw was going on in her life and what the story I wanted to tell was. And that's, you know, when I, when I first met her, she hadn't done an interview in three years. She'd gone out of the public eye and she'd been in hiding for a year. So this was her first interview in three years. No one had ever filmed with her in the studio before. And when you're a documentary director, you kind of have to alternate between two very different roles. One role is being the visionary, the person who sees something and can compel everyone to go along on that ride with them. And then the other part is being a ghost and being a non-presence in the room when you're filming. So you're kind of doing this Jekyll and Hyde personality <laughs> flip a little bit, yeah. but it's, it's in order to kind of build the relationship and the trust, both yeah. that you can be 
present in their real lives and for these important moments without interfering, but also that you see something mm -hmm. and need the subject to go along with you on the ride to capture the material you need to tell that story. Yeah, and, I, and it was really nice to see Taylor and you together on stage, just uh, her talking about how safe she felt with you. So clearly it worked, which <laughs> is great. Um, Isaac, for, for you, what would you say your biggest uh, challenge? I guess, in short, child labor laws. Cause we had, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we had like a seven-year-old. Yeah, we, we can only work like six uh, hours a day with this kid. And he's in every scene. And we had like 25 days, so we, we would shoot scenes and shoot them out and then get everyone wow. else's close-ups and stuff. So it dictated kind of the style and yeah. uh, you know, the, the number of camera angles we can do and all that stuff. And it was, yeah, yeah. It was a, a nightmare was the word. Yeah, night, nightmare. <laughs> yeah. But I bet you didn't have SAG in the Ozarks. <laughs> oh, we did have. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so secret whispering, yeah. SAG rules, who cares? <laughs> I mean, there's such a community aspect to my film, yeah. so I definitely needed real people. And um, the real people from my neighborhood, sometimes they would show up, sometimes they wouldn't. <laughs> sometimes the horse would come, sometimes the horse would not come. So we didn't know on any given day. You know what? Bless my producer's heart. Oh. <laughs> Seeing the characters, I actually completely You, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. sometimes I would just say, just set the camera up and we'll just, you know, pop between them when they come. Oh so, but I needed them there. It was important. <laughs> yes, you did need them there. Yeah. But I love that they're just on their own schedule. Yeah, and but but that's part of Miss Juneteenth, you know. Yes. <laughs> Everybody's finding out things too late, <laughs> <laughs> including me. <laughs> well, again, you guys pulled it together, which I think is really impressive. Um, and this is like the fun of indie filmmaking, right? Like the problems. No, okay, maybe not the fun. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, it's like there's so many bad stomach feelings. I know. I just, like, I've just made all of you very uncomfortable. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, one of the things was when I when I uh, put out requests for the panel, I can't believe all of you said yes, by the way. But I also kind of did not realize that I compiled a panel of filmmakers who are all of you are a part of underrepresented voices in our industry. So I'm really happy that like this came together and I have you all together. Yeah. I know it's an honor being diverse, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so chill. <laughs> but I did want to ask you, obviously, just, you know, we are at Sundance and this is a, a very inclusive community, I feel, but most of us live and work in Hollywood and that, you know, the, the issue of inclusion has come up once again. You know, the awards is coming upon us. We don't have any... Uh, it, it, it's a pretty white awards, which I think is okay to say because it's white, male-dominated, and I did say that. I wrote that story, and I got some flat for it, but it's true. So um, <laughs> I'm just curious to know, you know, for you guys working in the industry, how do you feel, you know, the landscape is shifting um, with regards to the stories that you want to tell? Are you getting the opportunities you want, um, or are you still facing obstacles and breaking into ground that, you know, has traditionally been kind of, you know... The, the, the straight wild, white male filmmakers? Mm. I would say that I feel like 
I am perhaps invited into more spaces that I wasn't invited into some years back, but just because I'm in those spaces doesn't mean I am being offered or given, mm -hmm. you know, the, the same set of criteria that say one of my contemporaries is, you know, it's like the idea of a seat at the table, but there's no fork or there's no spoon or I'm like, is there a plate or, oh, I'm <laughs> here. <laughs> There's, I don't even know if there's a seat. I think I'm standing at it. Maybe there's a stool. I think there's, you know, I'm sort of like, but I'm in, I am in the room, which is new, and there's more of that, but I am not, you know, I am in this body. And I, that can be challenging for the person on the other side of that table, and I don't know that they're aware or conscious enough of that. I think they think that they're perhaps that they're letting me in is, you know, a high and a yes, and but they have to also sort of contend with their own feelings of how they engage with somebody that looks like me and what their expectation is or assumption of how much I actually have or am capable of, you know? Absolutely. Edson, for you, how's it Yeah, it's, it's um, interesting because for me, I don't know if I'm the only non-American here or, it might, no, no. I think you might be. I, I, might am, be. Yeah, yeah, I no. actually am American, believe it or not, but that's another story. <laughs> huh. and, and because uh, being a foreigner from Brazil, and I, I don't look Brazilian, that's what people say. <laughs> and, but, I'm sure you've and, never uh, heard that. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> never ever. And, uh, I think for me, uh, what is was facing is more like a from a foreigner point of view, and the resistance is especially for a writer uh, writing a, like a different language and, and facing like uh, people saying, "Oh, but people don't say like that," or people and and uh, for me it was like uh, hard to just uh, but but also I, I think it was uh, great for me to face the resistance because then I I need to just improve my English, I need to do more, mm -hmm. uh, but but at a, a point at some point that it felt it felt like. A, no matter if I, I, I'm still, I can still be a foreigner, I can still be, have an accent, I can still, I don't need like perfect English because I think the writing goes beyond that. Mm. It's more about like I think the feelings and about the emotions, about how you know, and, and that's, that's universal. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, and this perspective was very, you know, it, it, was, it was great to see that you can, you can show people even though they start to have like more of resistance that it's kind of a universal language, so for me it was, it was a good thing to learn. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I feel privileged because I made three features in a decade, you know, but I still am very much an outlier in a lot of regards. And, you know, I am a woman, but I'm also a petite woman, which comes with its own set of challenges. And, you know, even though I'm able to sort of wrestle these films together, you know, there's always constantly a feeling of people kind of trying to diminish that, mm -hmm. you, know, a, you know, sense of authorship that I have over the way that I work. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think it creates in me, you know, a sense of, like internal panic, like, oh, maybe I'm not making the right choices. Oh, my God, am I going to fuck this up? Or can I, you know, can I put, you know, the, the risk of this entire movie on this, you know, girl from South Buffalo? Um, but, you know, I still kind of, like, have to sort of push forward because, you know, I have to make the movie that I want to watch, and that's my, my job, first and foremost, is to make that film. Lana, how have you found the documentary space to be... Um, for, for female filmmakers, because I feel like I tend to see a little bit more representation there. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason the documentary space 
might be a little more amenable to female filmmakers is because financing on your first film or two is often given out by nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. You can fund your entire film through nonprofit grants and funding that have a, a panel system, and you know it's a bit more. I don't know because I haven't worked in fiction, but it feels like maybe a bit more of a meritocracy. Um, but it's it's still challenging. I mean, Eliza mentioned this is her third feature in a decade, and I know there was this Annenberg study that came out recently mm -hmm. about the 1,200 most successful films of the last decade, yep. and from anyone who made one of those films. 50% of the male directors got to make a second film. 14% mm. of the female directors got to make a second film. And then there's an even steeper drop off with film number three. So I feel so fortunate right. to have had the chance to make a third film and to have had the chance to make a higher profile, higher budget project. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a, it's a credit to Netflix, to Morgan Neville who produced the film and to Taylor Swift, who mm. was herself so supportive of me as a female storyteller, mm -hmm. because she herself has lived through the different ways that female storytellers are underestimated and diminished, punished for having an opinion, disliked for being assertive. Mm -hmm. She really got it and was so protective of me having my space as a director to do my thing. So I'm yeah. really lucky in that way, but there's still a, a long way to go. Yeah. Isaac, how's it been for you? Um, I mean, I, I do sense a lot of good conversations and progress and stuff. And I, I, yeah. I feel like for Asian films, at least, um, I was pleasantly surprised that, you know, uh, Plan B, A24, they're very supportive of taking this film and doing a Korean language film, Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which I thought that was very brave and that signals a shift. Um, but, I mean, to... To the point of what everyone's saying, like I do feel like um, maybe I do have it easier in many ways uh, than women filmmakers. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I would think of as a, a marker for progress is um, I notice, like I get a lot of now that I'm starting to get scripts, you get scripts that are like for Asians. You, you know, it's like an Asian story. Yeah. And and I've talked to women filmmakers. It's like I'm only getting scripts that are about women. You know. Uh, and that's cool. That's that's great uh, that these projects are out there and th that they're interested in you. But also, you you would some kind of progress might look like they see you as being capable of any kind of story, and um, you know you, you would have the freedom to tell any type of story, um, mm -hmm. as long as there's some kind of personal or or loving uh, element that you you want to bring to it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just my point of view. I don't mm, know nice. others of you. It's yeah. a good point of view. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How has it been for you, Tony? I think this is my first feature, mm -hmm. so I'm about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, but it, it took a long time to get it up the hill, so I've had some experience with that. Um, yeah. But I think I feel incredibly honored. Like one of my purpose and purposes in life, like my mission is to get more African-American women leads in the forefront. And especially for this film where, you know, Nicole Bahari is brilliant. Like you have an African-American woman that is like giving this performance in this quiet, graceful way, in this very human way. And I want to see more of that. And I hope more of those doors open for um, women, women of color, you know, this diverse panel, period. Um, 
But, you know, we'll see. I mean, the fact that we're all here, I think, is progress, but we'll see what happens after. That's true. Yes. Um, well, I definitely want to open this up for questions from all of you. I have more questions, though, if you, none of you do. But I'm, so I'm sure you do. So does anyone have something they would like to ask? Um, so a few of us are from the demonic part of Florida. Oh, Janexa. <laughs> so sorry. I really liked it. I relate. It's okay. Um, I like so we've dark heard energy. about um, we've heard about your challenges and your surprises. What's like a little tidbit that you can give us about like for future filmmakers? You mean of advice or Yeah, of advice. Just oh, okay. like a one liner, sorry, I left out. Oh, okay. A little advice for the filmmakers in the room. Is that for me? Is that for, it's for everyone, right? Is it for me? I think it's for, oh, no, it's for, for everyone. You weren't looking at me. It was for everyone. It was for everyone. <laughs> Eliza. That's for you. Go with your gut. Go with your gut. That is a good, yeah, that's a good piece of, that's a good life advice thing. Yeah. Yeah. Trust people would be mine. Collaborate and trust and yeah. love the process. Yeah. That's good. Um, I'll say with your first project, I think it's a good idea to keep it a secret, not tell anyone until it's done. <laughs> because if you tell people and are talking about it, it creates this kind of loop of pressure and expectation. That's interesting. But especially with your first film, can be really tough. So that would be my suggestion: keep it to yourself. Like this, this documentary, secret. you kept very. Oh, well, I did right? keep this a secret. Yeah, <laughs> that, that wasn't necessarily my my dream. <laughs> we thought Lana was making a movie about Nancy Pelosi. That's true. <laughs> It was kind of great because for you a year it was... You know, she still was, might be. <laughs> for a year it was secret, and I would just let people guess what the film was about, and I have 100 new documentary ideas from those guesses. <laughs> uh, I would like to see you take yeah. Pelosi. I'm hoping that's coming. <laughs> yeah, any other bits of advice? Yeah, I think for, uh, advice would be write, write, and write. Mm -hmm. Write something that only you can write and something that you don't see in the theaters and then you can make it and then show it mm -hmm. to people. Yeah, I agree. I would say hold tight to your vision and I would say don't give up. It took me a long time. Yeah, great question, love it. Any more questions? Yes. How long did it take from the beginning to sitting right there? Did it take for you to create it? Oh, well, good like, question. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I'm going to throw this out at you, Edson. To me? Yeah. Uh, but but you mean like from script, writing the script, or just like from pre-production, or just just writing? Really? Uh, from beginning. Like the very beginning of the concept. Uh, it's it's interesting because of course I I, wrote, I, I finished my first draft of uh, Nine Days 2015, and then uh, my movie is going to be you know screening tomorrow. And uh, but but it's but at the same time I I believe that it, your movie or any piece of art that you do make is not contained in just like that period of time. It's, right. I I, mm -hmm. I was able to to write nine days because of everything that I went through from you know when my mom gave birth to me and it sounds very like physical <laughs> but but somehow I think it might be true. It, until like my childhood and my friends that I met and like things that I read and, and things that I watched until now, you know? And I feel like you, you as an artist, you are this person who have like the, this piece of writing inside of you and then 
I feel like it's more about like finding the time and the effort to just put it out of you, you know? So, mm -hmm. but for me, it was just 2000. Of that writing, from writing to here, it was like 2015. And I totally agree. I, I feel like I've been um, living Miss Juneteenth my whole life. Like, I was never a Miss Juneteenth, but I obviously wanted to be one. Um, and I would go to the pageant every year as a child and see those Miss Juneteenth winners and, you know, it just held on to me. It was something that I couldn't let go. So, I mean, if you're talking about script to screen. Yeah, when did you start writing? Uh, um, 2013 was oh, when wow. I finished my first draft, and we're here at Sundance in 2020. Wow, so. seven years. Mm-hmm. incredible. <laughs> next, I know, uh, um, as uh, Asia wrote, wrote the tweets back in 2015, October, and then you got this in 2017, right? Mm -hmm. So this has been 2017 to now? Yeah, it's about two and a half years right now. Okay. From, from, from yes to this couch. <laughs> uh, Eliza, for you? Yeah, um, sorry, my mic is a little bit funny. Um, I think it takes me about three years. I'm a three-year cycle filmmaker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Lana, you were with Taylor's couple of years, years right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so you started around the time of rep the Reputation tour? Started during the tour. Okay. Yeah. Till now. All right. So Pretty fast for a documentary. That is very <laughs> fast, yeah. But you had so much great archival footage as well. So yes. There was a bunch of pre-existing yeah. material, home videos, archival stuff, stuff that she'd shot with her cell phone. So yeah. I got to use all of that and then shot more material and... Uh, it was all all in the edit, a okay. lot of the film. Yeah. And, and Isaac, how, how long did it take uh, Yeah, my, I started February of 2018. Um, okay. But I, I have to agree with what Edson's saying, that you just, that process, it draws from so much that you've been just wrestling and chewing on for so long that it finally pours out sometimes, or it trickles out and, yeah. and you write mm -hmm. it. But yeah, for, for me, it kind of poured out, and I realized I'd just been holding it in since, uh, Maybe since my daughter was born, I think that was the impetus to get me to start writing this story, but yeah. Great. Any more questions? How important or not important was it for those of you with narrative films to get name actors? And if you didn't, did you have to fight to have the people that you wanted who perhaps didn't have names that were known? That's a good question. Because some of you have first time, like, Eliza, you have, like, brand new actors in, in yours. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a little bit part of the precedent, you know, that I've established through other films that I like to make discoveries. And when you write films about young people, mm -hmm. you know, there's less pressure to, you know, cast name actors. And, you know, there aren't that many young people that are so bankable. You know, there's a, a handful. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I love the search and I love the discovery. I was going to say that I was fortunate enough to work with a studio that that didn't matter. It was more about a vibe and less of mm -hmm. a name, and which was so different than my first feature, which was mm -hmm. working with financiers who were very centered on that in a super aggressive, very stressful, sad-making way, actually. <laughs> and, you know, you would get someone and you lose them and then you'd be like, no, I guess no one cares. It just was, like, so painful and brutal. Um, and that part of the process was actually quite breezy in a way. It was more, I think for them, it felt more energetic and it was much more collaborative. Um, who 
who I was interested in bringing in and that there wasn't that pressure was actually sort of confounding as I felt like I came to the table thinking we had to do that and that wasn't necessary for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. And you found two great leads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Riley Keough is a very established actor. Yes. But, uh, but Taylor Page, who's my lead, is less so. And um, yeah, I mean, they're, all of them are, the cast is phenomenal, the core cast is phenomenal. And it was more about the balance of, in a way, it's like putting together a kind of curious dinner party, I think, is sort of what it feels like. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, not with those characters. You don't want to have dinner with them, but <laughs> those actors, you do. Yeah. Uh, how was that process for you, Channing, with your first feature? I got really lucky because my producing team was just so supportive in me finding just the absolute best actors for the role. Mm -hmm. Nicole Bahari's brilliant, a brilliant actor, and um, she could bring the nuance that we were looking for, and we really needed somebody who could navigate those emotional levels in that quiet, graceful way I was talking about earlier, and so she brought that. Um, Alexis Chikese was a first timer. I was terrified, but that girl jumped in there and killed it. Like, love her. Um, Kendrick Sampson was super awesome. And the, these are folks that we've seen before, but they really like jumped in the environment. We surrounded them by the community and they jumped in and just, you feel like they belong there. Yeah, love that. You had Steve. Yeah, pretty cool. for sure went, yes. So this is a weird backstory, but Stephen Young is married to my cousin who grew up with me in Arkansas. Oh, I love that. So there's like a personal connection for him. And when he, we never talked about work, and, which is really weird. Um, and then our agent, we, we share an agent, and uh, she connected us Wait, to each other. Wait, you share an agent and you never talk we about never, work? I, I don't want to bother Stephen. That's, that's <laughs> more family, so I don't want to be like that guy in Fair. the family who's like, hey, I got a script. <laughs> you know? yeah, she, and even when my agent was like, I'm going to show this to him, I said, oh, please, don't. I don't want to mess things up when, when we're like hanging out. I don't want to be that guy. And then a, he, he really liked it, and he wanted to talk with me about it. And he came on as an executive producer and wanted to, to star in the role. And that just changed everything, to be honest. Awesome. So mm -hmm. uh, it was great. And our, our family relationship is intact. And great. Right. So. We'll circle back in 10 years' time. But yeah, I'm yeah, glad yeah, it's going well. Yeah. Did, he, it, it did he ask you why you didn't send it to him and why your agent was? No, on, OK, so when I, when, I told, when I told him that, he just goes, that's cool. <laughs> he said, I respect that. Like, you know, that he knew that I didn't want to bother him. So, yeah, I yeah, already, yeah. I'm a weird guy, though. I, I'm so weird about stuff like this. Like, I don't want to be that annoying guy in the room. So I got yeah, this yeah. thing. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm glad it all worked out really well. This is good. Yeah. Uh, and Edson, you obviously, you, you have a great cast as well. Yeah, uh, what was the process of putting great. them together? They're pretty great. I was super lucky. And, uh, but for me, it was always like having the the, the person was right for the role, you know, if it was a, a named actor, it would be a named actor. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be, but uh, yeah, but then I had the lucky, you know, to get all those amazing actors to yeah. be okay. my movie, so that's it. I think we have time for one last question, so make it a really good one. It can't be average. <laughs> okay, now I've put the pressure on, I'm sorry. We have yeah. one. You're behind a wall. I can't see you. Say hi. hi. Um, filmmaking is such a collaborative process, and for indie filmmakers, like finding a really great supportive producer is a, such a great um, journey. So I want to ask you about like how did you find the producers for this film, and then what is the best practice you can share um, to find a good producer for your fe feature film or any films? Mm -hmm. Good question. 
how do you find your, your right producing team? As they sit right here watching you. <laughs> I can definitely answer that. Do it. Take it. One of my producers is my husband, so he didn't have a choice. Awesome. <laughs> Neil Creaky Williams, he's awesome. And he led us to Sailor Bear, who are an awesome team from Texas. Um, and they were so supportive of me, James, Toby, and David. And then they brought on Jeannie Igo, who is a wonderful woman from Ireland and somehow moved to the South and got with Miss Juneteenth. Um, and then Leyline was our company who financed the film, and they were wonderful in a way that they just, you know, let me create and you know let me be the authority on Miss Juneteenth so I just I feel incredibly lucky and I also felt incredibly supported and still do mm -hmm. I had um I was brought on to this film by one producer Morgan Neville mm -hmm. who's a great documentary director himself and I think one thing that we connected over when I met him like seven years ago was really just taste. We both love film history, old movies, fiction films, and could talk and talk and talk about all kinds of different movies and what we loved about them. And so having kind of similar taste in films is one great thing. My day-to-day -day creative producer on this movie, the person who was with me on shoots and in the edit room every day, is an amazing producer named Christine O'Malley. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, when I first talked to her and explained, well, here's the ideas of the film. I don't want it to be a conventional pop star documentary. I want it to be like this inverted look at Taylor's inner life with X, Y, and Z. She just got it immediately and you know it becomes it's it's really it's a deep relationship it's like marrying someone they're there with you all the time for the the good moments the bad moments the insecure moments the joyous ones and so i think you need someone who you can be comfortable being being vulnerable around and being weak and down and and but also who can give you the strength for the the up moments so someone who you're not afraid of sharing all the sides of yourself with and who can be a total ally for you mm -hmm. in this journey mm -hmm. yeah i think that's important that seems to be like the trick of a good pr producer to really be like the support mm -hmm. system and the backbone of the project yeah one time someone who was with Christine and I said, you guys have an impenetrable bond. And we loved that. We thought success, you know, this is great. He nailed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Any, anyone else want to speak about their producers who are sitting right here? They're, they're amazing. They're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I'm, I'm serious. Like, they're, they're just uh, uh, amazing, great. And yeah. I feel like uh, it's pretty much like uh, it's a marriage, you know, and you have like uh, to to find the, the problem is like almost like you you have to find their partners through speed dating, like mm. to, to go through the marriage. Like it's it's quick, but it's pretty much like uh, people who support uh, were in the same same page as you and uh, see the see the movie the same way as you do. And I feel like uh, yeah, it's pretty much what happened in my movie. I was very very lucky. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I guess, you know, for me, my second feature was produced by Cinereach, which is a nonprofit, and they were really wonderful, but they have a model of, you know, really trying to sort of support first and second time mm -hmm. features, so I, I knew I was kind of out in the world again on my own, which was intimidating, and I pulled together, you know, interesting people. Um, I had, you know, a meeting after Beach Rats with the head of the BBC, and it was very, you know, uh, supportive and eager and excited about 
what I want to do next, and she immediately offered me a development deal, and it was the first time anybody in such a transparent way had been like, yes, we're supporting you, we're excited, make what you want to make. Um, and it had never been so easy before, but they're a UK, you know. I know, or, we do things differently. Yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> I, they do things differently, so I needed to find US producers, and I worked with Pastel and Adela Romanski and Sarah Murphy, and part of why I, you know, was drawn to them was because they wanted to expand the vision of my work. And everybody else was like, oh, Eliza's making another movie with non-actors, like under a million dollars, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and they, they set the bar much higher. Um, so there were some broken hearts, I think, in, you know, in the process of people who wanted to work on it. But I didn't feel wanted to help elevate my voice. Yeah, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're about out of time, but thank you all so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. Subscribe for more panels from the 2020 Sundance Film Festival.